Has anyone here been to a reading by Hannah Tinty before? Whoa, all right, you guys, you have no idea. I love it. Hi, this is Catherine Lasota, founder of LIC Reading Series. LIC Reading Series started in April 2015 as a monthly event at LIC Bar in Long Island City, Queens, bringing three writers each month to the great borough of Queens for stories and readings and panel discussion. In this episode of our podcast, you're going to hear the readings from our June 13th, 2017 event, which featured Julia Fierro, Brandon Harris, and Hannah Tinty. Now, because LIC Reading Series is so proud to be in Queens, I do ask each of our readers to share a brief Queens anecdote before they read from their work. And you're in for a special treat this episode because Hannah Tinty took that um, directive and decided to sing a song for her Queens anecdote, and everybody joined in. So uh, you'll hear that just before she reads from her book. Again, this is from June 13th, 2017, the readings from Julia Fierro, Brandon Harris, and Hannah Tinty. And if you want to hear the panel discussion from this event, just listen to our next episode. And now let's get started with our first reader, Julia Fierro. First up, you guys, it's her second appearance at LIC Reading Series because she's amazing and she has a new book out and we are just like, we're that old now. Like, we've been around the block. You too. Julia has been around the block. Julia Fierro is the author of the novels The Gypsy Moth Summer and Cutting Teeth, which she was here for for her last book, Cutting Teeth. Her work's been published in The Millions, Poets and Writers, BuzzFeed, Glamour, and other publications, and she's been profiled in The Observer and The Economist. She's a graduate of the Iowa Writers' Workshop, and she founded the Sackett Street Writers Workshop in 2002. Who's heard of, of the Sackett Street Writers Workshop? Yeah. We have an instructor in the crowd I see and also a, an LSE reader, David, in the back there from the Sackett Street Writers Workshop. It's a creative home to more than 4,000 writers in New York City, Los Angeles, and online. It was named the Best Writing Classes by the Village Voice, Time Out New York, and the Best MFA Alternative by Poets and Writers. Um, and I want to tell you guys, Gypsy Moth Summer was just published last week right on june 6th and it's available here it was listed uh by many many publications as one of the most highly anticipated summer releases including huffington post bustle volume one brooklyn martha stewart magazine the millions many others um and we had book list says it's poignant raw and at times brutally honest about the poison concealed behind the charming facade of a quaint community and it's an intense and meaningful read. Let's all welcome Julia to the stage. Um, I know, I've just given up the stool, you know? So, um, my queen, first of all, thank you, Catherine. Um, I was really excited to come back and so honored to be asked the first and second time. And, um, and I do really think, you know, Catherine in, in many ways is really a model of, I don't know, the kind of person I hope to be in the literary community. And she's really generous and smart and, and also fun. Because, you know, there's a lot of writers who just, I don't know, they're, maybe they're fun on the inside. <laughs> but they're like keeping it just for themselves. <laughs> Catherine's like, you can share my fun. And that feels good. So. <laughs> um, I wanted to. Yeah, I was not. That was not in the instructions. So I called my mom not that long ago to get a, a more focused queen story because I gave my general queens. But my mother was born in Jamaica, Queens. 1942, March 3rd. Um, it's good that I know her birthday. And um, so her queen story is pretty interesting. Also, she has a wicked queen's accent, um, which balances my dad's Italian accent. Um, and she, so my queen story is that my grandfather, uh, my mother's Irish-American, and my grandfather... Um, who, when he died, was Colonel Bob Darty, And actually, there's a colonel in the Gypsy Moth Summer that's based on him. 
but my grandfather was like half the bastard that the colonel is in the book even though he did do like white glove um checks in our bedroom to make sure it was clean once a year so my queen story is that my my grandmother was going into labor and my uh grandfather hitchhiked from the base where he was uh the army base because he was about to get sent out to the war to germany but of course it was my grandmother's first baby and they don't like to come out a lot you know on time and so he um he didn't get to see the baby but um until my mom was four years old and my grandmother raised um my mother um above a bar that my uncle jack ran in hollis queens called darty's bar and uh, my mom remembers being fed she had her own little shot glass <laughs> with with her name on it <laughs> patty and they would give her like brandy i know and also, like, we're, like, not genetically equipped to drink, you know? Like, we, like, have a beer and we're, like, red-faced. And so um, that was, like, sort of like a weekly occurrence, giving Patty the uh, brandy. Okay. It's my, <laughs> it's my queen story. Um, Hollis Queens. So I, um, so far, I've actually only read the prologue, but I think the last time I was here I read the prologue, I can't even remember. So I'm going to read a different section, a little summary, little summary, like as in summer section. Um, the Gypsy Maw Summer is my second published novel, and it takes place, it's historical fiction. It takes place in 1992, in the summer of 1992, on an island called Avalon. I know it's technically historical fiction. It's like, it's like yeah i know um and um it takes place on an island called avalon which is a lot like long island but smaller and um and basically i'm gonna read the first paragraph because i think that gives a really good sense of summary and it's much harder to actually summarize my book and then i'm gonna switch to a different section um, it's told in five perspectives, um, and there's a young boy named Dom who's realizing that he's gay. There's a matriarch named Veronica who is trying to hide the fact that her husband, the colonel, who runs the island's um, naval aviation factory, which is based on Grumman, um, which used to be on Long Island, um, she's hiding the fact that her husband, the president, is 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 going senile. And um, there is a middle-aged African-American man, Jules, who's a landscape architect and has moved to this very white, very conservative island with his wife, who's the um, sort of prodigal daughter uh, returning to the island after many years. And there is a 16-year-old named Maddie um and i coincidentally was 16 years old in 1992. so i'm going to read a little section from maddie's point of view it's on a beach and there's a lot of caterpillars sorry i lost my place should we talk about queens while i find my place I'm getting there. I'm getting there. Here it is. Okay. Oh my God. That was so unprofessional. So this is chapter seven. The kids started the night at Singing Beach. Garrett and Spencer and the boys found a bunch of seaweed, stringy lobster traps washed up on shore. And Maddie and the girls watched them stomp on the weathered wood so it splintered with pops and cracks that echoed off the pink clay cliffs. The boys' faces grew sweat-slick from the effort, and Maddie saw how the destruction made them buzz like it was a drug. Boys always got to do the fun stuff, it seemed, while the girls watched. Or, she thought, cheered the boys on. 
which is exactly what Bitsy and Vanessa and Gabrielle were doing, hooting and applauding while lit parliament lights dangled from lips glossed with kissing potion roll-on in orange squeeze. The boys stacked the wood in a towering pyramid, and soon a bonfire blazed so tall and hot Maddie was sure it would keep the caterpillars away. John Anderson drove his Bronco into the dunes and blasted Beastie Boys. Brass Monkey came on and everyone sang along. Rolo, the loudest, and Maddie saw the drunkest, dancing like a spastic robot when the honking horn bleated between refrains so the rolls of fat under his snug tie-dyed Grateful Dead tea jiggled. Maddie had avoided her best friend Penny since the fair and was still pissed at her for taking some random pills when she knew she shouldn't, especially not with the chemo. Maddie had held back from shouting, what the hell were you thinking on the long ride from the fair to the ER? Sorry. Once the blood had returned to Penny's acne-rough cheeks, a tube pushing saline into her already bruised veins, the doctor had taken Maddie aside and asked if she'd seen Penny take anything. She had lied knowing that was what Penny wanted while they'd waited for Penny's more than tipsy parents to show up. Penny's M.O., Maddie knew, was to laugh even the most serious fuck-ups away, but Maddie didn't laugh along this time. Garrett and Spencer dropped the ice pack cooler into the sand. Maddie watched as Garrett flipped the lid open with a flourish. Ta-da! Bitsy squealed, baby, my favorite! She kissed Garrett a bottle of Bartles and James kiwi strawberry-flavored wine cooler dripping in each of her hands. When their lips parted, Maddie saw Garrett's were shiny with gloss. He slipped a bleached rope bracelet, a prize he'd won at the fair, over Bitsy's wrist. Maddie knew the braided rope would live on Bitsy's arm all summer, shrinking with each shower, each swim at the country club, country club pool, and in the salty ocean, each dip into a steaming hot tub at the parties the richest kids threw when their parents were off island. The rope would tighten until it had to be cut away. Maddie spotted Spencer through the wind-tossed flames. His lower lip bulged with Kodiak dip, and she knew if she kissed him now he'd taste awful, like tobacco and beer. But he'd done something to his hair that night, blown it out maybe, and the feathery waves caught the setting sun so the red blonde burned bright. She wanted someone to slip a rope around her wrist, Tag her, mine, like the message stamped on tiny heart candies for Valentine's Day. But was Spencer Fox the yours to her mine? She wasn't so sure. Ricky Bell rolled a blunt, stealing, sealing the cigar wrapping with the pointy tip of his tongue. Garrett yelled, you detonating a fucking bomb or what? Let's get this session rolling. The blunt made its way around the fire. The hit Maddie took was both spicy and sweet, and a purring heat grew from a tiny speck inside her until she felt like she was made from the same stuff as the simmering gold stripe the sun painted from shore to horizon. She lay on her back in the sand, not caring if it messed up her hair, and listened to Penny and Vanessa splash in the water, braving the cold June waves. The boys raced up the windbrush sand dunes that had always seemed to Maddie like a mirror image of the ocean waves. Sand spit out behind their heels and left a trail of cascading twilight-lit tracks. She and Bitsy counted the fireflies dotting the black woods as they duck dug their toes into the cool sand, smoked cigarettes, and sucked on the Jolly Ranchers they dropped into, into their wine coolers. She felt safe with Bitsy when they were drinking and smoking. The girl's rough edges softened. They cheered the boys doing keg stands, the muscles in their forearms twitching as they clutched the metal barrel sides, sucking beer from a long plastic tube, white foam bubbling at the corners of their mouths. The boys chanted nicknames they'd made for one another years back. Rolo, Deuce, Snake. Mm -hmm. Can you talk over the thing? 
some in elementary school. When it was Spencer's turn, his shirt fell down, exposing a trail of red blonde fuzz leading from his navel to down there, and Maddie's felt as if the bonfire's flames had licked her face. When the blunt came back around, Bitsy was standing next to her in the circle. Bitsy said, open wide, sweetie. Maddie did as she was told, and Bitsy's soft lips were on hers, smoke filling her mouth and nose so it streamed from her nostrils, and she coughed until her sight blurred with tears. The boys around the fire nodded and mmm-mmmed like they tasted something delicious. Gabrielle clapped and said, add a girl. It was the kind of summer night that made falling in love feel possible, more than just the plot for one of the chick flicks she and Penny had watched week and nights before their induction into Bitsy's crew. A breeze set off the flutie song that had given the beach its name back when the Shinnecock Indians canoed its waters, harvesting oysters before the boots of white men touched Avalon's pebbled sand. The whistling call of the wind squeezing through gaps in the craggy cliffs reminded Maddie of the stories her mother had told her and Dom before Mom had chosen her pills about the wailing sirens, mermaids so beautiful, no sailor could resist their call. That was how Maddie wanted to feel about Spencer, a need that left no room for doubt, impossible to pull away. As she watched him through the flickering flames, she thought she could like him, enough to let him do the things boys did to the girl they were going with. And he could be kind of funny and sort of sweet. He wasn't as handsome as the boy at the fair, she thought. Almost a week had gone by, and all the kids talked about was they and them, meaning Leslie Day Marshall and family. While they stood on line for chicken-colored sandwiches at the deli, and passed a joint down by the dirt parking lot near the docks. As they burned bonfires and tapped kegs, drank cases of beer on their father's boats in the harbor, and rollerbladed to town to get more beer. And definitely, she imagined, as they whispered to one another over the phone after curfew. They, them, was a topic even hotter than the almost fight with the West Side kids. It wasn't just the kids. She knew the gossip mill had ground its way across the island via summer camp carpools and chit-chat in the supermarket produce aisle. Through the housewives' call trees, their manicured fingers fiddling with plastic phone cords as that night's roast marinated. Did you hear they? Did you see them? So-and-so said they. They and them were all anyone on the island talked about. And Maddie had heard Sandra Weller at the bakery, Donna Rich at the stop and shop, and even her own parents claim that it was Leslie Day Marshall and family who had caused Penny's seizure, that it was they who had carried the gypsy moss to Avalon Island in unimaginable numbers. Them, 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 whispers slipping in and out of screen doors, joining until they formed a hue and cry thick enough to strangle the island as loud as the drone of the caterpillars feeding on the forest, until it seemed even the caterpillars chanted, them, them, them. Of course, Maddie knew the caterpillars, Lymantria dispar dispar, had been lying in wait all winter, cozy in their furred egg sacks tucked in the crooks of trees all over the island, waiting patiently for their turn. And she, too, wanted to believe in a sense of order, divine providence, or whatever, a sign linking the arrival of Leslie Day Marshall's family and the metamorphosis of the island overnight into a nest of ravenous pests. Thank you, Julia, for kicking off the evening. Um, all right. Brandon Harris is a contributing editor at Filmmaker Magazine and has written for The New Republic, Vice, The New Yorker, and N Plus One Magazine. He's also a festival programmer at the Indie Memphis Film Festival. In case you haven't noticed, this man works in film. 
He made his directorial feature film debut in 2012 with the New York Times critics' pick, Red Legs. His memoir, Making Rent in Bedsty, available here, was published also just last week on June 6th. You guys share a pub date, which I think means you know that, like a secret handshake, right? For this, it's, uh, there you go. Um, guys, don't look. They just showed it to Hannah. It's okay. But I'm a. Th- All right. Um, I will tell you that New York Times said of his feature debut film, Red Legs, that it dives into shared grief with candor and a refreshing curiosity. So check that out. And Kirkus Reviews says of his recently published book, it's a thought-provoking examination of the millennial black experience in the first decade of the 21st century. Let's welcome Brandon to the stage. How's everybody doing? I don't think I need this in a room this small, but I'll, I'll try to use it. I'll kind of awkwardly lean in. It'll be good. No, no, it's all good. There we go. It's fine. Yeah, it's good. Um, something embarrassing. Well, uh, first of all, I just want to say thank you to Catherine for, for asking me to do this. Um, uh, I, I maybe wasn't even going to read until Catherine cajoled me into reading um, from this, this book here in New York. Um, uh, you know, Queens is, is, is fascinating. I, I really only come to Queens to visit Claudia, uh, my friend sitting over there. Um, some of the best, best drugs I've ever taken, I, I acquired in Queens. Um, some of the best Asian food I've had, uh, I, I, I acquired in Queens. Um, when I lost my computer on, uh, on, uh, January 1st, I was flying home or flying back home from uh, here, from Cincinnati, where I'm originally from, my other home, um, I left my, my uh, MacBook uh, in the seat right in front of me uh, that, I, that, I, that, I, that I wrote this book on, actually. Oh. And it was almost like exercising that computer um, because the stuff that I, I wrote in this book, probably that computer shouldn't be used anymore uh, after, after being the, the computer I completed this, this tome on. Um, but you know, Rego Park is one of the few places you can find a $300 MacBook if you know where to go. You know? So, um, I was able to, to replace it very quickly. So thank you, Queens. Um, but you know, so my, my Queens stories are kind of mundane and I, I thought to myself, but do I, do I know anyone from Queens, uh, of, of particular prominence or have I, 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 you know, obviously I watch, um, someone from Queens every day, uh, embarrass our country. Uh, and and um, our notion of representative democracy, and that, that you know that that's certainly not representative of Queens um, necessarily. Um, but you know, I was thinking, about, have I ever met someone who you know, from Queens really is is sort of representative of of some of its good qualities? And and the only person I could come up with was Fifty Cent. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, you know, because one of the ways I made rent in Bed Stuy for a long time, I don't live there anymore. Um, is that for Filmmaker Magazine, uh, where I've been an editor for 10 years, as, as um, Catherine mentioned, uh, I, I often travel the world uh, writing about film festivals. And um, it, it's not very good money, I might add. Uh, J- Jamie Stewart can attest to this. He's in the back, and he occasionally contributes to Filmmaker. And, um, you know, uh, I don't know if he was on food stamps in the years he was working there either, but he was. Okay, so he was. Yeah, so, I mean, that's... If you're going to work for Filmmaker Magazine, you know, you kind of need to be on food stamps. Um, but... Uh, uh, so, you know, but, but one of the perks of the job was I got to travel the world um, and see really exotic places and meet, uh, you know, filmmakers I had long revered and, you know, interesting cultural figures and, and um, uh, drank for free and, 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 and whatnot. Um, and one of the places I wound up covering festivals for, for Filmmaker was uh, the Aruba Film Festival. I went to the, uh, the, the second annual uh, Aruba Film Festival. And um, a film that world premiered at the second annual Aruba Film Festival was... Um, uh, Mario Van Peebles' uh, Things Fall Apart, uh, uh, w- which starred 50 Cent, uh, was co-written by 50 Cent, was produced by 50 Cent, uh, financed by 50 Cent. Um, he also did the music supervision, as he, he told me, you know, lovingly. Um, uh, and uh, has anyone seen the film? <laughs> Mike, you've seen the film? Okay. <laughs> That's good. Um, it doesn't surprise me for some reason. But so uh, uh, the film is about a, a college football running back played by 50 Cent, um, well into his 30s. Um, 
I'm going to get to that. I, don't, you're going to step, don't, just chill. So, um, so uh, you know, they, they, had, they, had two, they took over two screens in this multiplex and, and 50 did an intro for each of them, you know, and he's got an entourage of 15 people that kind of follow him wherever he goes and, um, and the film starts and uh, uh, Mario Van Peebles is nowhere to be found, by the way. Like he is not at the world premiere of his own movie, which is a little always suspicious when the director doesn't show up to the world premiere of their own movie. But, um, and uh, the film is really a magical thing. Um, uh, you know, it, it's in a way, if it's intentional, if what it's doing is intentional, it might be a masterpiece. I, I don't think anything that it's doing is necessarily intentional, but, but it's simultaneously the most risable movie ever made, risable movie, uh, about uh, college football, working class f- African-American families, and cancer treatment. Like, simul- like in one movie. You know, like at one point they're playing arena league football, but then they're playing like in a, a full size stadium. And I'm like, what? I don't understand. Um, 50 Cent lost 100 pounds uh, for the role. He, he kind of saw it as his like Robert De Niro and Taxi Driver, you know, uh, award season bait sort of role where he was going to like physically commit and lose all this weight. And, and so when I met him for the press conference uh, for the film, which I hosted the day after the world premiere, he, he had gained back some of the weight. Um, it was looking really good. He's wearing kind of like this, like, like see-through, like metallic looking shirt and people were handing him formula fifties and he was guzzling them. And he's really not, I mean, he's a really nice guy, you know, he's so super sweet. And the, you know, 10 minutes we spent hanging out, um, but before we went out to do the press conference. Um, and so, you know, the movie's very, ter- you know, kind of an awful movie. And, and yet, you, you know, you don't want to expose that to, to people necessarily in this role. Uh, I often write critically and, you know, certainly if I was writing critically about the film, I would, I would say that. But in this role, I'm just kind of trying to get him to talk about, what, you know, why he made the movie, um, which is about this, you know, cancer-stricken running back that he plays. And so, you know, I, the first question I asked was, um, you know, uh, wh- what, where does this movie come from in you? Uh, and he was like, well, you know, 12 million people every year die of cancer, and I'm just trying to do my part. And I, I mean, it was an earnest answer. Like, a, I mean, you know, it was, I, you know, I, I, I almost wanted to cry, you know. And then, but then I asked, you know, secondly, I was kind of like, uh, so, um, yeah, I, I couldn't help but think the, the title of the film, Things Fall Apart. Um, are you a fan of Chinua Achibe? Uh, was that somehow an inspiration for the movie? Or did you just like that Roots album of the same name? Or, and, um, and, and 50 said, well, you know, she has long been the greatest African novelist. <laughs> and you, and you know, and like there's 15 people who were there in the press and another probably 40, 50 people. And I, I people kind of start laughing in the audience, you know, but, and I, it was, it was really this dreadful moment. I, I started sweating. I was like, do I correct 50 cent in this moment? Or do you just keep walking past that horrible error? And I, 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 I just let it. I had to let it go, you know, because who corrects a queen's legend in Aruba um, in front of some hungry journalists? Okay, so um, I'm going to read a little bit from this book. Uh, and, you know, I spent a lot of this morning uh, hungover uh, watching a murder trial on, um, on my computer, um, uh, which is not like a great way to spend a hungover morning. You know, it's really not like the best thing to do, but, but I'm writing an article for the, the New Republic about um, uh, uh, the, the retrial of uh, a, a former University of Cincinnati police officer named uh, Raymond Tensing. Um, I don't know if anyone's familiar with him, but um, on July 19th uh, of 2015, he shot and killed a man named uh, Samuel DeBose, um, who was a, a motorist in his car um, uh, in Cincinnati, Ohio. Actually, not super, not terribly far from where uh, I, my mother lives and where I live when I go to Cincinnati. Um, and so I'm going to read a little bit about, uh, that shooting, uh, and my, the neighborhood that, that my mother lives in, um, which is not in bed <laughs> but, uh, which, um, is toward the end of this book. Let's give me one second to find that chapter. Aha, here we go. Uh, and this chapter is called a uh, 50, 920 Rhode Island Avenue. Um, I was driving to my mother's home in the central Cincinnati neighborhood of Bond Hill one summer night a couple years ago. I had the windows of her bright orange Volkswagen Beetle down 
and had stopped on Bond Hill's main drag, Reading Road, where the pockmarked, where the pockmarks of shuttered storefronts and crumbling housing are evident from every vantage point. On many a night, seemingly aimless, unemployed Negro boys sit in carp at a Richie's Chicken restaurant across the street from a long-closed Nation of Islam diner. Although I grew up in a, a few neighborhoods away in slightly leafier and more integrated Kennedy Heights, I can remember when the neighborhood wasn't quite like this, before the streets became so hopelessly violent and economically unsalvageable that my father, who'd lived in the heart of the same neighborhood with his most recent wife, decided to get the fuck out. I'm tired of niggers, he'd said, his processed hair straightened just so, the green eyes we share darting away from each other's. It must be tiring to be tired of yourself. While stopped at the intersection, I glimpsed out of my eye a tall Negro dressed in a white tank top, his skin high yellow like my own, crossing the street in what seemed like a beeline toward my car. He was coming from a corner where much wasteful bravado and boisterous ennui take place, and I felt it immediately, that familiar sensation, the need to secure my body against potential predators. I was driving an orange car with plastic orange flowers on the dash, the same car I had been driving when held up at gunpoint not far from that corner two summers before. The man sauntered behind my car, and I locked the door. Hearing this, the electronic click of the door locks snapping into place, he looked back at me, and our eyes met as I swiveled my head to watch him. We didn't stop looking at each other the whole time he crossed to the other side of the street. The light turned green, and he said, I ain't trying to roll up on you, bruh. It's all good, I replied, but really it wasn't. Fear might be the predominant mode of contemporary American life, but that doesn't make it good for you. For the past 50 years or so, Bond Hill has become predominantly African-American, and for the last 25 or so has become more bund and blighted, as have many Negro communities in Cincinnati. This is a direct result of redlining, blockbusting, and deindustrialization, of racist federal policy and cynical opportunism on the part of white developers, of an America not having a clue how to treat its black citizens fairly. My best friend's father, an intellectual property lawyer, grew up in Bond Hill in the 1950s. His family fled from the rest of them, uh, his family fled with the rest of them, likely told of the coming Negro hordes and the imperative to save themselves from declining property values by huckster slumlords. When I met and befriended his son at Seven Hills, along with a few other, a few coloreds who were nigger rich like us, his family lived in the Tony district of Hyde Park. Bond Hill is now only 7% white and just as segregated as it was half a century ago when blacks first started to seek refuge and opportunity there. My foot hit the gas and the encounter ended. As I drove home back to the rings of suburban simulacra on the outskirts of the neighborhood just a mile away, a suburbia my mother helped build, I couldn't shake the anger and shame. Why should I have to be afraid of my fellow yellow brother, or any brother for that matter, in the fucking first place? My mother, in her desire to protect me, had spent a great portion of her life instructing me to fear the very officers of the law who were supposed to ensure our safety, all while locking her doors and windows, employing an alarm system, and owning several guns, all in fear of the type of niggers, yes, the very word we use, Negroes fear most. At the villages at daybreak, not far from a golf course and a decaying sports arena that hosted the NBA during the Kennedy administration, my mother is trapped in a cycle of fear that white, most white folks of her station in life mostly don't know. I had returned to the area to take care of my ailing father, a ceiling cleaner and a janitor with diabetes, heart disease, chronic back pain, and a menthol cigarette habit he'd stopped trying to kick. After the dissolution of his third marriage, he had stopped taking all the nearly two dozen medications he was on. After stent in the hospital, he began to take his medication liberally without much rhyme or reason. He spent the summer in rehabilitation. I had never seen him so low. Later that summer, on July 19th, a few days after I assumed the worst about the man approaching my car on a humid Bond Hill night, an all too real spectacle of violence against a defenseless black motorist sent chills down both of our spines and that of the entire city. In Mount Auburn, a neighborhood on the steep hill that separates downtown from the University of Cincinnati, Samuel DeBose, a 43-year-old father of 13, was shot in the head by the University of Cincinnati police officer Raymond Tensing, who had stopped DeBose for not having a front license plate on his Honda Accord. Cincinnati police initially said that Mr. DeBose, who had been arrested 60 previous times, handed Mr. Officer 
uh, handed Officer Tenzing a bottle of alcohol after being asked repeatedly for his license, suggesting he may have been under the influence. Officer Tenzing allegedly asked Mr. DuBose to exit the vehicle. After he refused, Lieutenant Colonel James Whalen of the Cincinnati Police told reporters on July 22nd, there was a struggle at the door with Mr. DuBose in the vehicle and the officer outside the vehicle and the vehicle sped away while the police report written by Officer Eric Weibel stated that Tenzing claimed he was being dragged by DuBose's car and had to fire his weapon as a result. Officer Philip Kidd, who arrived on the scene just as the shooting took place, backed up Tenzing's account, and so did Weeble himself, writing, Looking at Officer Tenzing's uniform, I could see that the back of his pants and shirt looked as if it had been dragged over a rough surface. As national news outlets pursued the story of Sandra Bland's death in a Waller County, Texas jail cell following the similarly minor traffic stop, the DuBose mystery picked up momentum locally. The police were in possession of a body camera, uh, body camera footage of the incident, but the Hamilton County prosecutor, Joe Dieters, was unwilling to share it with the public. The Associated Press, the Cincinnati Inquirer, and four local news stations filed a joint lawsuit against Hamilton County on Friday, July 24th, claiming that Dieters' refusal was in defiance of Ohio's open records law. Police Chief Jeffrey Blackwell, who had considered resigning in May, after there were four homicides in 10 days and reports of dissension within the police leadership, and city manager Harry Black were grave when discussing its contents that Tuesday. It was not a good situation, Black told local news station WLWT. Someone has died that didn't necessarily have to die, and I will leave it at that. Blackwell added that the police were prepared for whatever might come of it. At the same press conference in which the video was unveiled, Raymond Tensing was indicted for murder. The video clearly depicts Tensing, who is 25 and Caucasian, shooting DuBose with little provocation. Dieters is a Republican who was called Joe Dieters, the uh, prosecutor who you were introduced to in that section I skipped. Um, Joe Dieters is a Republican who was called pro-cop at any cost by Cincinnati City Beat following his refusal to prosecute Officer Marty Polk for running over a homeless woman. Joanna Burton, while she slept in the city's recently renovated Washington Park five years earlier. Polk claimed not to see her as she was lying in a blanket. This was enough for Dieters to refrain from prosecution. He was unambiguous, however, in his condemnation of Tensing during the public remarks unveiling the tape and Tensing's indictment for murder, a move widely credited with stamping out any potential unrest. It's an absolute tragedy that anyone would behave in this manner, Dieters said. It was senseless. It's just horrible. He purposefully killed him. In the run-up to the press conference, largely due to Blackwell and Black's comments and Dieter's reticence in releasing the video, fear of riots gripped the city. Cincinnati has a long history of them. While 19th century riots, such as those in 1829, 1836, and 1841, often directed their anger at the city's burgeoning African-American population, the riots of the past 50 years such as those of 1967, 1968, and 2001, have largely been forms for blacks to unleash their own dissatisfaction. Cincinnati was the site of the last major American riot in the spring of 2001, following the deaths of 15 African-American men in five years leading up to the April 7th shooting death of an unarmed 19-year-old Timothy Thomas during a foot chase in Over the Rhine. On April 9th, protesters stormed a city council meeting demanding answers concerning the shooting, in which Thomas had been shot in the back four times by Officer Stephen Roach. Mayor Charlie Lucan, part of a political dynasty in the area, was dismissive of their anger and eventually left the chamber before the meeting ended. The local pastor, Reverend Damon Lynch III, a senior member of the civil rights organization Cincinnati Black United Front, suggested the protesters bar the doors until they get some answers. The current Cincinnati mayor, John Cranley, then a city councilman who presided over the committee that was holding the meeting, slammed his gavel down and demanded order, but none was to be found. After Councilman Jim Tarbell, long known as one of the key figures in Over the Rhine's gentrification, told protesters that the officer had fired his weapon because Roach thought his life was in danger, the protesters headed for the streets. Four days of looting and skirmishes with police ensued, largely confined to the Over the Rhine neighborhood, after police barricaded the neighborhood's southern borders to keep the violence from spreading to the central business district. 
More than five million in property damage occurred, and the citywide boycott was a citywide curfew was imposed, but it went largely unenforced in white neighborhoods. In the aftermath, an economic boycott of the city led by various black advocacy groups cost the city an estimated 10 million, leading Lucan to call the involved parties economic terrorists in the months before 9-11. Thank you. Thank you, Brandon. Um, well, I'm going to tell you that uh, Hannah has a special surprise planned for her queen's anecdote. <laughs> I'm just going to introduce, and we'll, you know, we'll take it from there. Um, Hannah Tinty. Was that you? No, no. Who was that? Oh, <laughs> sorry getting giggles in the middle. Hannah Tinty is a writer, editor, and teacher. Her story collection, Animal Crackers, was a runner-up for the Penn Hemingway Award. Her best-selling novel, The Good Thief, won the Center for Fiction First Novel Prize and was a New York Times Notable Book of the Year. Her new novel, right here, totally amazing, called The Twelve Lives of Samuel Hawley, Hawley? Hawley, was published in March by the Dow Press. So she doesn't know the June 6th publication handshake, but she knows the March one, and she can't tell you unless you also published a book in March. So it's just, okay. Hannah is also co-founder and executive editor of One Story Magazine. Yay! And has, yay! You guys, if you don't know One Story, check it out. It's great. It's um, every four weeks or so. New story comes to you in the mail. One story. This little, you can put it in your pocket. It's great. Um, and has been recognized with the pen, and I never know how to say this, it's Magid? Magid? Magid, it's a, it's a soft G. Pen Magid Award for Excellence in Editing, and the AWP Prize for Best Small Press for One Story. You can, she has a website, henandtitty.com. She's on the social medias, find her. Um, Washington Post calls this book a masterclass in literary suspense. New York Times says that Hannah has a deep feeling for the passage of time and its effect on character. And when it's appropriate, she can use her vivid language to express the ripping depth of human pain. <laughs> you can't wait. Let's welcome Hannah. Um, so I guess we do the Queen's things first, right? Okay, all right. So um, what Catherine was alluding to is uh, every reading that I've done so far for this book is I usually do a song on the ukulele and then the plan, the hope, is that the audience will join me. Um, and this time because I'm doing a song because I, I wanted to do a song about Queens and those are not as well known. <laughs> Uh, to do in a group crowded bar, usually. Usually I'm doing something like Johnny Cash or something everybody knows the words to. So um, so I'm going to do a song um, by the Ramones called Rockaway Beach. So maybe some of you guys do know this song. All right. So as a result, I brought, I handed out rhythm instruments, which may hopefully will bring back some of your, uh, you know, childhood feelings, right? And it's really easy because it's um, the song is it's it's a pretty like you know all Ramon songs sound slightly the same like da uh, 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 uh. okay and um so your job your job is to come in at the chorus at the chorus and join me um, so that I'm not left up here you know singing Rockaway Beach by myself. But Catherine's gonna come and help me with part of this. All right, woohoo! Yeah. And if anyone's really into it, I actually have some handouts with the words. Is anyone like, I think Brandon's gonna do it. Yeah. There you go, all right. I heard you got that. Okay, and Julia's got it. All right, okay. All right, ready? Writers are known for their vocal skill, singing, singing skills. So anyway, this all started after I, um, I went, I was at a conference with the cartoonist Linda Barry and she gave this amazing lecture about the human brain and creativity. And um, she talked about how we all, at some point, or most people, stop drawing. 
And when we're kids and you you walk into a kindergarten, all you need is like a whole bunch of paper and a big thing of, you know, like one of those 62 packs of Crayola crayons and you throw it down and every kid just grabs and starts drawing. And it's just part of how they express themselves. And at some point when we get older, we stop doing that. A lot of people do. And she's like, why does that happen? And she read all these studies and um, realized that we stop drawing a lot of times when we learn to judge ourselves. So when we start noticing the difference between the thing we're trying to capture, like a sun or a house, and we start seeing the difference between that and what's on the page. And you know, like little kids, like they don't see the difference. It's just like, that's just what it is. Um, and when they start noticing the discrepancy and then they stop. Or when they notice like, oh, Janie draws so much better than me. And so why should I do it, right? And so Linda's talk ends with like, why do we only do things that we're good at? We should do things that we're bad at. Yeah. Um, like, like play the ukulele uh, and sing in public. Um, or draw, because she says, you know, drawing, music, things like that, they spark areas of the human brain. And she like pulled out all these brain scans to prove this. Sparks areas of the human Wait, brain. She did what? She, she pulled out brain scans and like put them up on the wall. I thought you were like pointing like she pulled it out of her head. No, like, like she pulled, pulled out her out. own brain. No, yeah, okay. Just brain scans. And so showed how it sparks different areas of the brain. So anyway, so I was like, you know, I started drawing again, which I hadn't done since I was like in high school. Um, and I started you're, playing ukulele. You're a that. good drawer, yeah, actually. Well, it's, you know, I didn't, sh I didn't post the ones that were really crappy. All right. So the rose, does anyone know this song? All right, so enough, all right, hey, wait, enough people that, all right. Chewing out a rhythm on my bubble gum. The sun is out and I want some. It's not hard, not far to reach. We can hitch a ride to Rockaway Beach. Up on the roof, out on the street. Down on the playground, the hot concrete. Bus ride is too slow. Blast out the disco on the radio. Rock, rock, Rockaway Beach. Rock, rock, Rockaway Beach. Rock, rock, Rockaway Beach. Or we can hitch a ride to Rockaway Beach. Rock, rock, rock away beach. Rock, rock, rock away beach. Rock, rock, rock away beach. We can hitch a ride to rock away beach. Ukulele solo. <laughs> it's not hard, not far to reach. We, we can, can hitch a ride to rock away beach. It's not hard, not far to reach. We can hitch a ride to Rockaway Beach. Chewing on a rhythm on my bubble gum. The sun is out and I want some. It's not hard, not far to reach. We can hitch a ride to Rockaway Beach. Up on the roof, out on the street. Down on the playground, the hot concrete. Bus ride, it's too slow. They bass out the disco on the radio. Everybody! Rock, rock, Rockaway Beach. Rock, rock, Rockaway Beach. Rock, rock, rock away beach. We can hitch a ride to rock away beach. Rock, rock, rock away beach. Rock, rock, rock away beach. Rock, rock, rock away beach. We can hitch a ride to rock away beach. Applause to everybody. Can you just feel your brains like sparking? All right, now usually I do the song at the end, so it's weird to do it in the beginning because actually usually the song is the thing I'm more afraid of than, than the reading. I'm done, right? All right, I'm gonna stand up for this. Stand up. So um, thank you all for taking part. All right, this, um, this book is called The 12 Lives of Samuel Hawley. It's about a guy named Samuel Hawley. Uh, who's a criminal and who has been shot 12 times. You can tell because there's holes actually in the um, book cover. And uh, the only thing that has sort of given him the will to live is his daughter, Lou. Um, and Lou is represented underneath uh, by this star map. And she uses the stars and the constellations to find her place in the world. So I'm going to read a part that's about 150 pages in. And uh, the story weaves back and forth between 
the story of each of the different times that Samuel Hawley's been shot over his life from when he's about 15 years old till when he's about 50. So he's actually a lot like 50 Cent. <laughs> uh, and uh, then the other part of the story is about his daughter. And um, she's sort of, I think like all of us, trying to solve the mystery of her parents. I think it's important for any of us to figure out who we are and find our own identity. You kind of have to find out some of the past stories of your parents. And maybe when you do, you have a moment where you're like, oh, that's why he does that. Or like, that's why she does that. Um, if we're lucky, we get that chance. Um, so this is one of the stories that tells part of um, Holly's story. Uh, the only thing you need to know is um, they're at a diner. Uh, Samuel Holly is a criminal. He's there to uh, bring a payoff of money to a man named... Ed King, who is calling a fixed fight, and he has been flirting with a girl who's dressed all in black. They have been drinking milkshakes together and talking about meteors, and they have just ordered a whole bunch of pie. The waitress came over to the booth carrying a giant plate with eight slices of pie. There was blueberry, cherry, pineapple, peach, key lime, pecan, chocolate pudding, and banana cream. Each piece had a dollop of whipped cream on top. There you go, she said as she put down a fork and another napkin. But Ed King wasn't looking at the pie. He was staring across the diner and his eye was twitching like crazy. Hey, he called out, didn't I just see you at Gus's funeral? Holly spun around. The girl was about to leave. The door already open, the black hat perched on top of her head like a little animal. Holly felt his guts stir, a thrill mixed with dread as she let go of the handle and the glass door softly closed. She blinked twice before answering. I'm Gus's daughter. Well, I knew it, said King. All this time, I've been trying to place you, but the hat was missing. The girl walked over to their table. That's a lot of pie, she said. Have some with us, said King. The girl stood there for a moment, making up her mind. She glanced at Holly and smiled. All right. Holly slid over, and she sat down next to him in the booth, holding the purse in her lap. She was close, her hips spread across the seat. King called for more forks, and the waitress brought two. Then she went outside for another cigarette. Holly was already full from the milkshakes, but the girl picked up a fork and took off the point of the banana cream. I'm sorry about Gus, said King. It's all right, said the girl. She glanced at Holly. How do you two know each other? This lug works for me sometimes. Really? The girl licked the edge of her fork. Are you from around here, or did you know my dad from Phoenix? I knew him from New York, said King. It's a funny story, but I don't think you want to hear it. You could tell me, she said. All right, I will, but I wish I had a drink. I'm usually drinking when I tell this story, and it comes out better that way. He scratched his nose. I met Gus playing a trifecta at Aqueduct. After that, he helped me with a couple of jobs. He was a real little guy, and he was nearly always short on cash because he spent all his time at the track. I liked him because he drank harder than anyone I ever saw, and he was never sorry about it. It's funny he didn't say anything about having a daughter, and you're pretty. You'd think he would have been proud to have a daughter like you. When he was drunk, it was like he was a different person, and he used to do crazy things for money. If someone said, I bet you won't punch that guy. He'd go up to a bouncer and punch him. Or if we said, I bet you won't toss your wallet, he'd give his credit cards away to strangers. He'd pitch all his clothes off a balcony or throw his keys down a sewer grate. Everyone would be laughing and he'd say, sober Gus is gonna love this. And then I'd see him the next day, his face all busted up trying to cancel the cards, or on his hands and knees in front of a sewer grate by the side of the road with a hook at the end of a string, and he'd say, Drunk Gus did this to me. Now, a few months back, when he was sober Gus, he asked me for a loan to help him cover a debt, so I gave it to him. But Drunk Gus put the money on a horse instead and lost. And when I went to collect, sober Gus cried. And I kept thinking about him, crouched over that sewer grate, all pathetic, fishing for his keys. So I told him I'd give him some more time. And you know what drunk Gus did? He went to my gym that same night and busted the safe and stole my deposit for the week. He drove to Atlantic City and spent every bit of the dough. 
And then he up and died there, owing me, owing everybody. So that's how I know him. The girl put down her fork. You didn't have to tell her that, said Holly. I did, said King. Now she knows all about her old man. The pie fillings were starting to run together, the colors mixing on the plate. Holly could feel heat coming off the girl beside him. Why'd you go to the funeral, she asked. Because he owed me $5,000. It's not so much, said Holly, but he knew that it wasn't about the money. What bothered King was that the guy had turned on him. It's plenty. The girl wrinkled her nose. I haven't got that kind of money, and I, I don't know if any of this is true. King stabbed a piece of pie with his fork. He put it in his mouth. Believe it. The scar on Holly's back began to ache. And as soon as it did, his mind started taking inventory. His father's M14 rifle and extra ammunition in the duffel by his feet. A loaded Smith & Wesson revolver tucked into his belt. Holly's body was ready, every muscle tight. The girl slid out of the booth. She had taken her gloves out of her purse and she held them crushed between her fingers. She was shaken, but she still thought she could just leave. Thank you for the pie. Fast as lightning, King threw out one of his boxer's arms and caught her around the wrist. It made Holly jump to see him do it. Let go of me, the girl struggled against him. She was looking for the waitress. Sit down, said King. The girl opened her fingers and the gloves floated to the table. She stopped fighting and King relaxed his grip, but he didn't let go. The little black hat had come unpinned. Holly saw her eyes flashing underneath the veil. The girl acted like she was gonna sit down again, but instead she bent forward and sank her teeth into King's wrists. The man screamed and his fingers released. As soon as they did, the girl snatched her gloves and ran for the door. King scrambled out of the booth to go after her, but Holly got up and blocked the way. Just let her go, he said. Fucking hellcat. The girl's teeth had gone right through the skin, and now King was bleeding on his baggy suit. Holly listened to her heels running away, and then the bell rang over the door. You don't need that money, said Holly. This doesn't have anything to do with you. It does. He hadn't meant for the words to come out like that, but they did. And as they did, Holly knew they were true. This knowing was different from before, when his body had sensed the bullets coming for him. It was more like the meteor shower he told the girl about, a trail of cold rocks burning to life. He'd unlocked something, a possibility, and the entrance was here, in this thin aisle of space before him, between the booths and the counter and a row of spinning stools. Ed King's eye was twitching, the nostrils of his broken nose wide open. He leaned back and then his fist flashed forward as fast as when he grabbed the girl's arm but Holly had been waiting for it, and he dodged just enough for King to miss and topple over onto the table. The dishes went smashing onto the floor, pie tossed in every direction. The cook stuck his head through the kitchen window. What the hell is going on out there? It distracted Holly just enough so that King's next punch connected, a strong blow to the chest and then another quick to the jaw, and before he knew it, he was on the floor of the diner. King had the satchel and he was crossing over him and Holly reached up and took hold of the man's legs and threw him to the ground and scrambled on top of him and then he started beating him with all his might. It was what he was meant for. Holly's body recognized every turn like a well-worn path, the adrenaline, the heat of his shoulders working, the shifting of weight, the tumble of skin and hair, the blows to the ribs, the ache of breathing, the familiar sensation of his knuckles crunching, and it felt wonderful. The flood of it like some smooth, dark air flowing from a deep cavern. He grabbed the Smith & Wesson from the back of his pants and stuffed it into King's mouth. The cook stepped out from the kitchen, carrying a shotgun. He still had his hair nut on. That's enough, he shouted, drop it. Holly slowly removed the revolver from between King's teeth. He had been so close to killing that his fingers shook. It wasn't the way he'd meant to go. And now he backed away from the edge, his heart beating and the blood roaring through his hands, even as he lifted them over his head. Thank you. <laughs> That's today's show. If you like what you heard, tell a friend or leave a review wherever you found us. Special thanks to LIC Bar, the Astoria Bookshop, 
and our amazing intern, Nadine Santoro. A big thank you to our sponsors over the years, LIC Corner Cafe, Sweet Leaf Coffee, Court Square Diner, and The Gantry Restaurant. This episode was recorded by Carl Jacob and mixed and edited by Justin Alvarez. Our theme music is by Pat Irwin. The LIC Reading Series is made possible in part by the Queen's Council on the Arts with public funds from the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs in partnership with the City Council. I'm your host, Catherine Lasota. See you next time in Queens.